So my name is Alex Padilla. I'm a professor in the economics department. I'm also going to introduce you to our speaker for today for the Exploring Economic Freedom lecture series. Our speaker today is David Anderson, Dr. David Anderson. He is currently a professor at the Graduate School of Business and Public Policy at the Naval Postgraduate School in Monterey, California. He's also a research fellow at the Hoover Institutions, and before coming to the Naval Postgraduate School, Professor Anderson was a senior economist for health policy and energy policy with President Reagan, Council of Economic Advisor. Professor Anderson was earning his PhD at University of California, Los Angeles, under famous economists such as Armin Alcian, Harold Demsetz, and others. Please welcome Professor Anderson, who is going to talk to us today about what health economists know that Obama doesn't want you to know. Thank you. Thanks, Alex, and thank you. Uh, how is my volume here? Okay. Well, thank you for inviting me here. It's uh, almost as nice weather as where I came from. I've, I'm happy about that. I heard you had two feet of snow last week. Glad I missed that. Um, I want to do. I want to do. Start with the following. I'd like to have two volunteers come up, and I promise I won't embarrass you much. Okay, and I need one other. Okay, what's your name? Marissa. Marissa, what's your name? Andy. Andy. Okay, everyone can see Marissa and Andy. What I'd like you to do is, is look at their, uh, their tops, the shirts they're wearing. And I want you to think about which one you like better. I was hoping it'd be two males, because sometimes females don't like this, but okay. Uh, okay, who likes, this is Marissa, who likes Marissa's shirt better? Raise your hand. Okay, I'm counting about 30-some people. Who likes Andy's shirt better? Raise your hand. I'm counting 20-some people. Okay, thank you. thank you. That was easy, right? Not too embarrassing, especially since you won. Um, okay. What just happened? We voted on whose shirt we liked better. And the majority of opinion, at least among the voters, was Marissa's shirt was better. So that means we should all have to wear shirts like Marissa's. Right? I mean, the majority chose it. Is that right? Should we all have to wear shirts like Marissa's? Is that what you think? I'm seeing more heads shaking than I'm seeing heads nodding. Yeah? So you don't think so. We should each be able to choose our own shirt. Is that kind of what I'm hearing, what I'm getting? Yeah, that's right. In this society, in this free society, we should be allowed to choose our own shirt. Because you see, the choice of what shirt to wear is such an important choice that we leave that to the individual. I mean, let's face it, the choice about what shirt to wear is a really important choice. Whereas the choice about what kind of health care plan to have, the choice about what kind of pension plan to have, I mean, those are really trivial choices, right? And that's why we leave that to the government. Well, I think you see where I'm going. 
if the, ch if the choice about what shirt to wear is a really important choice and we leave that to the individual, it seems to make even more sense to leave the choice about what kind of health insurance to buy to the individual. Michael Moore, uh, who just came out with another movie, his, uh, his uh, Ode to Capitalism or whatever it's called, gave a talk last month at George Washington University and there's this really inter interesting interaction between him and a student on YouTube <clears throat> because Moore had been laying out how the government messes things up, special interests take over and just, just grind their own acts and get what they want. And this student said, well, if government messes things up, why do you want to give the government more power? And Moore didn't really have a good answer to that. And in fact, it was a very interesting interaction. It was the most open to thinking about things I'd ever seen Moore be. Yet many people feel hopeless about health care. We do have a mess. We absolutely have a mess in our health care industry. And therefore, out of despair, want to turn things over to the government. Well, it turns out that uh, most of the mess we have is due to the government. And I want to trace how that happened. So let's take a little trip down memory lane. One of the biggest first interventions in the healthcare industry was in accreditation of medical schools and accreditation of doctors. There was a famous report that came out almost 100 years ago called the Flexner Report that argued for having government license and accredit medical schools. And when that happened, the number of medical schools fell by a third, and the number, of the flow of new doctors into the profession fell substantially also. And by the way, among the groups differentially affected were uh, blacks and women that made it harder for them to get into medicine. So that was the first thing. It was an intervention on the supply side. The next big thing was an intervention on the demand side. In 1939, hospitals got together and started Blue Cross, not really as insurance, but as prepayment for medical care. They got state governments to put a 2 to 3% tax on the premiums of commercial for-profit insurance competitors. Now, 2 to 3% doesn't sound like much, but remember, it's a tax on the gross proceeds Given that the uh, insurers were making profits equal to about 5% of, of gross, a 2 to 3% tax is like a 40 to, 40 to 60% tax on profits. So as far back as 1939, people started thinking of health insurance not as insurance, but as prepayment for medical care. And that's how people think about it now. And insurance, ideally, is not prepayment for medical care. Insurance, ideally, is to handle the low-probability, high-cost event. Then there was another government intervention, and no one predicted that this would lead to more, more government intervention in health care, but it did. In World War II, Franklin Roosevelt imposed wage controls and price controls on the overall economy. Governments tend to do that during all-out wars. They want to impose price controls so they can buy stuff cheap and ration the rest to the rest of us. And they also imposed wage controls. The underlying inflation rate in the economy, though, the real inflation rate, you couldn't observe it with prices, but you could observe it with shortages. The underlying inflation rate was high because government was printing money like crazy to pay for the war. And so wages would have gone up, but the wage controls didn't allow them to go up. 
So employers who were trying to get workers to work for them, trying to bid them away from other jobs, said, we can't legally pay higher wages, so what should we do to get workers? What can we legally do to get more workers? Pay benefits. And one of the biggest benefits was health insurance. And so that's when health insurance really spread in the market. Meanwhile, during World War II, the income tax, which, it, which had just applied to very high-income people, started applying to everyone. In the terms of the time, the class tax became the mass tax. And one interesting thing people noticed about their health insurance that the employers paid was that they weren't taxed on it. And so this was kind of a good deal for both employer and employee. If an employer wanted to give a $1,000 raise to someone, the employee would be taxed on it, and the employer would pay Social Security tax on it. But if the employer gave it in the form of health insurance, there was no tax. And how would you give it in the form of health insurance? Reduced deductibles. Deductibles are the amount you have to hit during the calendar year before you start paying. Reduced co-payments, the percent of the bill that you pay, and that's what they did. And then the IRS started to tax that but Congress in 1954 said, back off IRS, these are non-taxable. So that's kind of how we got where we got, where employers were providing health insurance, and not just health insurance, but really prepayment for medical care, and that's how, where we got in the 50s and 60s. Then in 1965, the government introduced Medicare, essentially single-payer or socialized medicine for the elderly, and Medicaid, socialized medicine for the poor. And I'll say more about that a little later. Now, let's think about what the effects of that kind of health insurance are likely to be. I've got in my wallet my, I think I've got, my AAA card. I'm a member of AAA. And it's a great membership because um, they pay for my gas. They pay for fan belts. They pay for oil lube jobs. They pay for everything I do with my car. Do you believe me? No. They pay for towing up to five miles. They pay for charging my battery if it runs out. They pay for fixing a tire. That's insurance. But this, the equivalent of what I just talked about is what we have with our health insurance, where they pay for routine checkups, they pay even for low-priced drugs, prescriptions, and so on. So we have gotten used to thinking about health insurance as prepayment for medical care. Uh, as um, Alex mentioned in his introduction to me, I was the health economist with the Council of Economic Advisors in Washington in the early 80s. And one of the main things I learned there was that we pay so much for, medical care costs so much because we pay so little for it. In other words, because the price to us as the consumer is so low, we don't take account of the huge cost of it. We just use it if the price that we pay is worth it to us. We don't take account of the other costs. So in a sense, there's this huge externality, negative externality we impose on others by using the health care. And that was, I just saw that over and over again in my job. And I want to read to you a true story 
about a man in Medicare, and Medicare was set up roughly the same way. Medicare, again, the socialized medicine for the elderly. A 70-year-old man in Medicare, the government-run health insurance program for people over 65, entered a hospital with a ruptured abdominal aortic aneurysm. He made it through the night and spent three and a half months in the hospital. During that time, he was in the intensive care unit for two months, and nine consultants looked at his case. He lived. During his lengthy recovery, no one, not the patient, his friends, or his family, had talked about the cost. The total for his hospital stay, paid by Medicare, was $275,000. The patient's doctor wanted him to wear his false teeth to eat, but the man had lost so much weight they didn't fit. So the doctor called in a dentist. The evening after the dentist's visit, the doctor asked the patient if the dentist could help him. The man responded, oh, sure he can, but it's going to cost me 75 bucks. That's a lot of money for me. I'm not going to have it done. In other words, Medicare had spent a quarter of a million dollars on this guy, but it was their money, not his. He wasn't willing to spend $75 on his own health. And that's the kind of story that happens with the kind of insurance we have. I gave a talk on health care in the early 90s in St. Louis, and there was a man in the audience who told the following story. He had his own business, so he was paying his own health insurance. So he bought a high deductible policy, $10,000 a year. So basically anything other than really major stuff, he would pay for. He broke his arm. Cost $2,000. He pays for it. He goes for the follow-up visit to after the surgery. And the guy says, uh, does this little, you know, tells him, well, you've got to go and, and visit a therapist. And you probably are going to need about 30 visits at about $80 each. And he goes, well, doctor, I, I don't know if you understand. I'm not really insured. I've got this huge deductible, so I'm going to be paying for those 30 visits, $80 each, out of my own pocket. And the doctor says, oh, really? Oh, oh, here, let me show you what to do. In other words, what he could do was what he could do himself. I, had, I came to Colorado a few years ago and tore my ACL skiing. I had uh, surgery. I had to go to, a, to a, you know, the follow-up visit afterwards, all the therapy. And my insurance was paying. When I got two months into it, you know, yeah, did I need more? Yes. Could I have done it myself at home? Yes. But my out-of-pocket cost per visit was about $10. I went. And so think about stories like this all across the economy. And this is a big problem we have because of the way health insurance is structured. And health insurance is structured, A, in Medicare and Medicaid because government did it that way, and B, with employers because of this tax treatment that caused them to do that. Another thing that drives up the cost of health care is mandates. Mandates for particular coverages. Um, one of the biggest federal mandates that came along in the late 1970s came under the Pregnancy Discrimination Act of 1978. And under this act, women had to be covered for pregnancy. Now, if you think about it, there was a reason they weren't covered. In the economics of insurance, what you learn is there are two principles for covering something with insurance. One is that it's low probability. The other is that it's high cost. Well, pregnancy, clearly high cost, the delivery, 
but not a low probability in this age of, of birth control and abortion. Almost all pregnancies brought to term are planned. And yet, they had to cover it. And in fact, by the way, an econ a health economist at Harvard found, a, and he was able to do this by looking at states that already had this law versus states that didn't. So then when it came at a federal level, the states that didn't had to start complying. And he found that wages in the states that didn't have this law fell, relative to, wages for women of childbearing ages fell relative to wages for women in the states that already had the law. And the reason is because and a, and a mandate on an employer is virtually always paid by employees, implicitly, in the form of lower wages. Because we don't suddenly become more productive when we're, when we're covered. And so if we're not more productive and we have a certain amount of productivity in the job, that payment to us has to come from elsewhere. So if we get better benefits, we're going to get lower wages. And the usual finding is about 85 cents of every cost, every dollar cost of mandate is paid for implicitly by the employee. Um, there's another, well, I'll get to this when I get to mandated insurance itself as opposed to mandated coverages. But another one is mental health benefits that the government now mandates. And we think about it, there's a reason why a lot of policies didn't cover mental health benefits. It's called moral hazard. Anyone here heard of the term moral hazard? Okay, moral hazard in insurance is what happens when you're insured and therefore you're less likely to, to take care. So you have insurance for fire in your house. You're less likely to take care to put the fire out before you go out to the restaurant, the fire in the fireplace. That's moral hazard. Moral hazard in health insurance, you're more likely to take advantage of something like mental health insurance because hey, you go to someone who's kind of nice and you get to talk about your problems. Is that really health? Well, maybe not. But if the, gov if the insurance is going to cover it, I'll take advantage of it. Now, one of the things health economists have worried about in, in health insurance is something called adverse selection. Adverse selection comes about due to something else called information asymmetry. And so here's the basic idea. You know more about your health, probably, than an insurer does, at, at least to start. So if the insurer can't find out about information, can't find out information about you, there's information asymmetry. You have more than they have. So take the extreme. Let's say they can't tell anything about you. And also, just for simplicity, divide people into low risk and high risk. If they can't tell a low risk from a high risk, then if they price to low risks, the low risk people are going to take it, the high risk people are going to take it, and they're going to lose because they've priced for low risk people. So they have to raise it from that. And they know that. They're ignorant, but they're not stupid. So they raise the rate. What happens? Low risk people start dropping out. High risk people still find it attractive. So the selection is adverse to the insurance company. That's why it's called adverse selection. Now, economists have made a big deal about it. But it turns out, when you look at health insurance, and our, big, our best example is the individual health insurance market, there's not much adverse selection. And there's a really good reason for that. It's called medical underwriting. Insurers ask questions. Hey, never thought of that. How do you get rid of information asymmetry? Get more information. 
So they do medical underwriting. They get your health history. They get all kinds of things. They get your weight. They do blood tests. They do all these things. And they can price accordingly. So adverse selection, which was one of the major arguments that various people made for government intervention over the last 50 or 60 years, turns out not to be that big a deal, turns out not to be that commonplace. Also, by the way, one of the things I've, I've read about and now had personal experience with as the father of an adult daughter is the individual insurance market. And one of the neat things in that market is it's guaranteed renewable. You've probably heard these stories about people who get sick and the next year the insurance company drops them. That, doesn't, that isn't generally true. If you have an individual insurance policy and you always pay up, always make sure you pay up, pay on time, they cannot drop you. And moreover, they can't even charge you a higher rate next year based on your own personal history. They've got to charge you, if the rate goes up, it's based on people in your demographic. Like, let's say you're a 24-year-old female, as my daughter is, then it's the 24-year-old females who had these particular conditions coming in. She had a couple of conditions that made her rate higher, so those aren't going to go away. But then those go up for everyone in that category. So if she got cancer next year, and by the way, with my mother's history dying of cancer and my wife's history of cancer, that's a substantial probability. But if she got cancer next year, they wouldn't be able to raise it for that, and she could still get that health insurance. And that's kind of that's kind of ideal. And that isn't being talked about. People, most people aren't even aware of that. Michael Moore, in his sicko, makes it sound like these people have this health insurance and they lose it when they get sick. I don't know his particular stories. I haven't interviewed those people, but that's not typically the way it works. Now, um, one of the other interesting things about individual health insurance is it really is like health insurance in the sense of insurance. The ones that employers pay for, again, because it's a way of paying tax-free wages, they have low deductibles and low copayments. The ones that I pay for and most individuals buy are what are called catastrophic. The whole idea is to have a big deductible that the insurance covers, that you cover, and then the insurance covers it afterwards. And that's the whole idea. It, it saves a lot of moral hazard. And it's, it's for the big thing. It's so that when you get really sick, you're covered. You don't lose your house, you don't lose your car, etc. Now, what would, one of the other things that happens with mandates when there are mandates on insurance is that various provider groups go to the government and lobby to have the insurance cover their thing. So chiropractors say, we'll go to the government and say, we want chiropractic mandated. Mental health professionals will go to the government and say, we want mental health covered. What does that do to insurance rates? Raises them, okay? So is there a way of allowing people to, and by the way, just a little aside, that's what happened in Massachusetts. If you, if you look at Massachusetts, you can see in small scale the kind of thing that's likely to happen if any of the plans before Congress now, the Obama or the um, 
the Bacchus plan in the Senate and the Pelosi plan in the House, if those go through, because they're just, in a way, big versions of Massachusetts. And the plans, it, it, the, the plans both, if Obama were to sign them, would violate his campaign promise, which he was very good at. He was, in his debate with Hillary Clinton in Hollywood, I just, I thought, hey, I might even vote for this guy. I mean, he just nailed what is wrong with a mandate. And, and here's what he said. He said, you can have a situation, which we are seeing right now in the state of Massachusetts, where people are fined for not having purchased health care, but choose to accept the fine because they still can't afford it, even with the subsidies. And they are then worse off. They then have no health care, he meant health insurance, and are paying a fine above and beyond that. That is an accurate statement about Massachusetts, and that was why he argued with Hillary that we should not have a mandate, and now he's about to violate that if the bill gets to him. But the other problem with mandates, and we're seeing it in Massachusetts, is the providers start to load up because no longer do they have to worry about whether the, 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 the people buying the insurance want it, want all these extra benefits, because the people buying the insurance no longer get to choose. You've got to buy insurance. And that's going to be a problem. That will drive costs even higher. Now, is there a way of allowing people to avoid mandates so they could buy the kind of insurance they want? And the answer, fortunately, is yes. It's to allow people to buy health insurance across state lines that complies with the law in the state where the insurance company is situated. Then I predict that insurance companies in relatively deregulated states like Indiana and Kansas, where the rates are low to reflect the relative absence of mandates, would get lots of customers from states like New York, New Jersey, and Massachusetts, where the mandates are tougher and therefore the rates are higher. So essentially, allow interstate commerce. Allow, per someone in California, to buy insurance from a company in Indiana where it's under the Indiana rules. We now have that with credit cards, by the way, where we didn't used to. I'm just curious, who here is age 23 or less? Raise your hand. Okay. And of those people who raised their hand, uh, raise your hand again if you have at least one credit card. Almost, I'd say, 70, 80% of you. Why do I ask that? Because when I was 23, I could not get a credit card. And you know why? Because I was in California, I was in graduate school, and the government had this thing called a usury law, it's a price control essentially, that said the maximum rate you can charge on a loan is 11% annually. And at 11%, with no track history, no credit history, I was too big a risk for them. So I applied in 1973, when I was 23 years old, for a Visa card with a credit limit of $250. And I was turned down. And then what happened is they did with credit cards what I want them to do with health insurance. A company, I think it might have been Citibank, said, hmm, what if we located our credit card operation in a state that has no usury laws and we're under those laws? 
and we can charge an interest rate that really does reflect people's risk, and then young people can get credit cards. And that's why if you look at your statement from your credit card, it's often from South Dakota. You always wonder, what South Dakota, what's there, right? Uh, or Nevada, and it's these states with either no usury laws or very high limits on interest rates. And that made credit available to, peop to young people, and that was a huge improvement. Now, I mentioned the restrictions on supply in, uh, in, um, in doctors, but there are also restrictions on supply on the hospital side and actual physical facilities. And the laws are called Certificate of Need Laws. The acronym is CON, which, as you'll see in a minute, is a very good acronym. Because the CON is particularly tough in Illinois. It says, if you want to start a hospital, you've got to get a government, a government panel, a government committee to give you permission. And guess who else gets to come to the hearing? Your competitors who have hospitals. What do you think they're going to say? Oh, yeah, we welcome competition. No, not really. And so I, I, I single out Illinois for two reasons. It has one of the toughest con laws in the country. And by the way, even to expand a hospital, you often have to get permission. And by the way, hospitals are using it against these surgical centers. They're trying to get, use the con laws to prevent surgical centers from starting up, which are more efficient typically. But here's why the other reason I mention Illinois. Have you heard of a governor from Illinois named Rod Blagojevich? Does that ring a bell? Well, one of the big things in the story was that his allies on that commission used it to shake down, used it to get bribes from Mercy Hospital, which wanted permission to expand. And so that's the kind of thing that goes wrong when you have government have that kind of power over hospitals, over where, where people can have hospitals. Another restriction on supply is on drugs, prescription drugs. And the big restrictor there is the Food and Drug Administration. The Food and Drug Administration has um, not only requires that drug companies show that the drug is safe, but also requires it to show that it's efficacious, that it works. And to get a drug from concept to market and to jump through all the hoops and do all the tests that the FDA requires is now estimated to cost about a billion dollars per drug. And that's because of all the ones that don't work. So to get one that works, you maybe go through 100, and 99 of them disappear at some point. You spent money on them. So to get it from start to finish for a successful drug is about a billion dollars. And that, and by the way, most of the costs are not because the, of the requirement to show safety, but of the requirement to show efficacy, to show that it's effective. So I've got what economists call a Pareto improvement to suggest. Who here has heard the term Pareto improvement? Okay, it's maybe 80 or so I'll do a little, little uh, explanation. Pareto was this guy about 150 years ago, and I don't even know if he came up with the term Pareto improvement, but it's named after him. And the idea is, if you, have, you can have some change in policy 
that makes some people better off and no one worse off. And when economists try to find those, they're very hard to find. I can show you why uh, getting rid of the 25% tariff on trucks that we now have in the United States makes consumers of trucks in the United States and people in Japan better off by a greater amount than it hurts GM, Chrysler, and so on. But it will hurt GM, Chrysler, et cetera. So it's not a prey to improvement. It creates more value than it costs, but it's not a prey to improvement. So they're hard to find. Most changes are going to hurt someone. Well, I got one, and it's on this. Divide the world, or the United States, into two groups of people. People who insist that the FDA have certified any drug they use before they will use it. So they've got to have, they, they, they trust the FDA and they've got to uh, uh, have confidence that the FDA will, uh, has, has said this is good. And then people who are willing to trust other certifiers, and there are other certifiers, U.S. Pharmacopoeia, the Physician's Desk Reference, the uh, European Medical uh, Agency that does this, and so on. So there are other competing certifiers. And let's take people who are willing just to trust those certifiers. And then the rule, the, the, the change that I'm proposing is this. We say that the FDA loses all of its monopoly power to prevent drugs from coming on the market. But any drug that comes on the market has to have this little label that says the FDA has not certified this drug. Then people who insist on FDA certification can just take the ones the FDA has certified. The other people can take ones that have been certified by someone else. They're showing by their behavior, by their choice, they, they value that, so they're better off. The people who insist on FDA certification are no worse off. Maybe a few government officials are unemployed, but hey, we can just pay them lifetime income. And we're better off. Everyone's better off. And what would that mean? Well, it would mean that all kinds of drugs that we can't get, we can get more quickly. It would mean people not dying who now are dying because those drugs don't exist, and those drugs don't exist because those, that high cost prevents them from existing. Um, drugs have been introduced here that were introduced five years earlier in France. And the FDA trumpets it when they're introduced and says, hey, there's this great drug. What they don't say is, wait a minute, that means they've kept it off the market for at least five years. And X number of people have died because of that. Imagine someone with terminal cancer, and there's this experimental drug that hasn't been certified by the FDA, but the company would like to actually sell it and make money on it. They're not allowed to. And they would be allowed to under what I'm proposing. Now, you've probably heard, if, who here, by the way, has seen the movie Sicko? Okay, do you remember that part where he's talking about how the United States is ranked, I think, 37th, its, its healthcare system is 37th in the world by the standards of the World Health Organization? Um, well, one thing economists learn to do is look at data, look at, well, how were those data gathered and so on. So one of my favorite examples is 
Sophomore dropouts from Stanford in 1996 who majored in economics earned a huge average pay afterwards. Does that mean that if you're a Stanford sophomore majoring in economics, you should drop out? And the answer is no, because that average was high because of one guy, Tiger Woods. So let's look at the WHO rankings and see what's behind that. It turns out they're not just ranking health care, they're ranking what they call health distribution and financial fairness. So 25% uh, of the credit goes for health, for health. but 25% goes for health distribution. So if everyone's equally sick, it's a great system, even if they're very sick. 25% goes for financial fairness. So the idea there is, are rich people spending more than poor people on health care? If the answer's yes, then that's fair. If the answer's, they're all, uh, I'm sorry, if the, are poor people spending a higher percent of their income on health care than rich people? If the answer is yes, that's unfair. If the answer is everyone's paying uh, the same absolute amount, that's fair. So really smuggled into those ratings is this, their own values about how health care should be paid for. It has nothing to do with health. If you look at the, the various things we've got good measures of for survivability, like prostate cancer, one that for some strange reason interests me, interests me more the older I get, we have the best record in this country of anywhere on early detection and then doing something about it once we've detected it. Um, one thing that Alex didn't mention um, in introducing me is that I'm originally from Canada. And as you probably know, Canada has what's called single payer, government payer. And essentially, so I want to just say a few things about Canada. Because I think that there are seeds in the various bills before Congress, the, the Bacchus bill and the Pelosi bill, that if the bill is passed, will eventually lead us to be where Canada is. So I think it's a really good idea to look at where Canada is. But first of all, let's say what Canada is. What's their system? Their system is essentially a system of price controls. The price is set above zero for providers, because otherwise no one's going to provide. You've got to pay doctors and hospitals something. But it's set at zero for patients. So when my father got back from the hospital in Canada after a 10-day stay, he got a bill for $20, rental of a TV, $2 a day, times 10. The rest was paid by the government. When you have, a, you know, some kids when they grew up, hated spinach, I hated price controls. I mean, when you have a price control, you get a shortage. And when you have shortages, you have rationing. And the way it happens with healthcare is rationing by waiting. It's not that hard to see a general practitioner in Canada. Although, by the way, in some cities in Canada, those are limited. And there's a lottery. Someone new moves to town. They get in the lottery to see if they can get a general practitioner. You know what? I'm, I know I'm supposed to do a thing. Oh, sorry, what? Your bike is going to the bike that you haven't used. Okay, so what should I do? You go to the center and check. 
I'm sorry? Oh, in here? Which one? This one? So move it away, right? I just go with this? Okay, so I should use this or I shouldn't use this? Don't use this. Talk loud. Okay. <laughs> and I thought you had a question. By the way, I'm realizing that, you know, this is, after all, in a way, a large economics class, and I usually give a talk, and we go to Q&A at some point, but feel free to raise your hand if you have a question at this point. I've laid out a lot of stuff. I've got more to lay out, and I'll decide whether it should be handled now or in a formal Q&A. Yes, miss. Yes. I'm sorry? Is it proven that the other countries you talked about? Other countries. Not every drug. It's just there'll be some drugs that'll be more approved more quickly, say in France. And I know I've written about a few of them. And so if we'd had those drugs when the French approved it, we would have them earlier and save lives, make lives better, and so on. Other countries? Like you keep saying companies, and I'm not sure. Because companies don't get to approve drugs. Yeah, the other certifiers. Are they not here in the U.S.? Oh, oh, no. No, I get it. Uh, other certifiers. Yeah, there's U.S. Pharmacopoeia, which is in the, is in the U.S. There's physician, Physician's Desk Reference, which is in the U.S. They get to certify them, but the FDA has monopoly control on whether they're allowed to be sold. And that's what I want to get rid of, that monopoly power. Yes, sir. Uh, those other certifiers, though, that's uh, private industry? Yes. So isn't there a lobbying tomorrow as of there that if I want to sell a drug, I can just pay Amera, whatever it was, to get my drug certified? Yeah, and uh, that's a good point. And, and let me talk about how they handle it. This thing here that doesn't work, <laughs> it's not the best example given what I'm going to say, but I bet I'm looking for a little two letter thing on it. Um, anyone know what I'm looking for? UL. UL. Underwriters Laboratory. That's a completely private, completely privately funded certifier. And basically, I'll, I'll get to you. So, you uh, so, so basically, you have a fair amount of assurance that if UL certified it, it's not going electrocute to electrocute you. And it's worked pretty well. Now, how do they do that? Well, they're aware of this moral hazard problem. So on the board of UL, they have representatives of insurance companies. Because the insurance companies are going to be ones that pay up if that goes wrong. And so they figure out things like that. Consumer Reports is another certifier, and they've got very good ways of blocking it so that they aren't bought off, essentially, from the various, by the various companies. Uh, yes? Um, I'm, I'm glad that you brought up the uh, FDA, and I think that those are, that's uh, a great suggestion. In the beginning of your talk, though, you, you said that the, um, one of the things that uh, um, lessened the supply of doctors was when medical schools needed to be accredited. And right. my question to you was that, how in the heck do you know if you're getting, I mean, you can't just go into and say, well, let me just, let me just have him do a test surgery and see if he does a good job. Right. Or, you know, there's not, that's the problem with healthcare. I think there's not a way to, to you know, necessarily ask your neighbor, like, hey, did you feel like your, your open heart surgery went all right, or would you do it over again? Right, it's a small sample size, right. So you want certifiers, right? I'm just saying what we had was this government accreditation thing, and I, I, I'm advocating competing private accreditors for medical schools and for doctors. So, for example, when, when a lot of Jews left Germany in the 30s 
and came over to the United States, it was pretty clear there were a lot of really good Jewish doctors, but they went years without being able to practice because they hadn't done it through the, the U.S. system. And, and there, there are various ways to certify. And, you know, you can, you can go to the office and see that they, they have the diploma on the wall, and that's a certification. And, 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 you, and actually, HMOs, in a sense, or HMOs, the extreme HMO like Kaiser Permanente, is a certifier in the sense they're going to hire doctors. Doctors are on salary. They're going to have their test. They're going to certify. And you know going to Kaiser Permanente, they have some level of quality of doctors. I'm not saying it's, it's perfect. It's not. Nothing is. But think about it. I came on an airline yesterday, and I didn't get any choice about who the pilot was. And yet I had a lot of confidence that, the, uh, that um, U.S. Airways had done their job of certifying. But I have to say to you, that's because the pilot was certified by a federal agency. No, you're right. And, 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 and I'm, you're right. So it wasn't the best example. <laughs> but, but what I will say is I'd be confident if, if there were no FAA because the, the airline has the right incentive. <laughs> Considering what's happened recently with the uh, small airlines and what has been allowed to occur, you would be confident. Which small airline? Um, the commuter plane that went down in Buffalo? Yeah, who had like a th- under a thousand hours of flight. Yeah, no, I mean, again, I said it's not perfect. We have, it's safer to go uh, coast to coast on an airline now than it is to go 11 miles on our safest roads, rural interstates. That's pretty safe. And I was, someone, uh, yes, over there. Yeah, um, you mentioned earlier um, that part of your solution um, would be interstate um, marketing of, of different plants right. to choose from. Uh, where are you in tort reform um, in terms of that being part of your solution? And secondly, um, I know all these insurance companies require in our country to have escrow accounts equal to what I've heard is 100% of what they potentially pay out. Those funds are in turn, in, from what I understand, invested in banking, pharmaceutical, um, the food industry, and clearly they, a lot of the government contributions come from these insurance companies. So do you see regulating these investments and controlling what these companies give to our government as part of the solution as well? Uh, let me go in reverse order, answer your second question first and, and then your first. Um, how, and, and, and I'll answer it by asking another question, but I will get to the answer. I think the question will make it clear. Does anyone know how active alcohol companies are in lobbying at the federal government level? If you have a choice, very active, medium active, low active, where would you put it? Very low. They spend very little lobbying in Washington. Now, next question. How active are they in lobbying in Albany, Sacramento, Denver, uh, Carson City? What am I doing? I'm listing off every capital city of every state. How active are they? High, medium, or low? High. They are among the biggest lobbies. Why? Because alcohol is controlled and regulated at the state level, not the federal level. Control breeds lobbying. So the one reason people lobby is or the main reason is that government has this control. And I think we should distinguish between two kinds of lobbyings, what I'll call defensive and offensive. And defensive I'm totally in favor of. If they're trying to just get the government to back off, I will support them virtually all the time. 
If they're going to get the government to go after their competitors, I'm going to oppose them virtually all the time. And I think we need to distinguish between those two. So now getting back to your point, what you will see is the people who spend a lot of money lobbying Washington are people who have a lot at stake. If you don't like health insurance lobbying now in Washington, you should oppose every single bill that's now being talked about because those bills give insurers a lot more power because everyone now has to buy insurance from them and also regulate them a lot more. So they're going to be lobbying all the time to affect the regulation. So that's the answer to the first one. But, uh, no, but you, asked, you asked two, so I get to answer them. I get to answer them. Okay. On tort reform, I think that's a tougher problem. And the reason is that I'm a federalist. In other words, I've read the Constitution a few times, and I don't see that the federal government can under, legitimately under the Constitution do any kind of tort reform. So I think tort reform has to happen at the state level. Now, at the state level, do I tend to favor it? Yes, I do. I think that's gotten way out of control. And the nice thing about tort reform, a typical version is that the, the, pers the entity being sued, the doctor, the hospital, can't be sued for more than 250000 in pain and suffering or some, some number like that. And you might say, well, wait a minute. You're a, you're a free market guy. Why should you impose that number? You aren't imposing that number. You're saying... That's the upper limit on what they can be sued for unless they contract otherwise. So, for example, a doctor who says, you can sue me for up to half a million or up to a million or up to two million is free to make that contract. So tort reform, as I understand it, the versions I've looked at essentially do what's called have a default contract, where if you don't have that special kind of contract, it's up to 250000 I would like to see that, but I'd like to see it at the state level because I think it's always dangerous to put power in the hands of the government and uh, at the federal government, any government, but especially the federal government. Um, I'd like to follow up, and so I will, but I, so I hope to get back to you, but I've noticed a question there and there, and I also have a few more things I want to get to. Um, in the blue, and then you're, you'll be next. Um, with regard to court reform, um, as a business Yes. They have limits on the amount for pain and suffering. So yes. the government can impose limits for workman's comp on pain and suffering. Yeah. I think that would be helpful with uh, regard to high health care costs because no, I... my doctor pays $25,000 a year and he's never been sued. Yeah. Um, the other question. What, what your doctor, what's your do what, what uh, specialty is your doctor? Orthopedic surgeon. Okay. But he's, he's a DEO, so he's a naturopathic. Okay. So he only does a certain number of uh, surgeries per year, so his cost for uh, medical malpractice insurance is pretty low. So 25000 is pretty low okay. per year, quarter of a million, I guess. But anyway, um, how is it that we could go about getting rid of mandates on the state level so that we could uh, get some more private? What are some ideas to get rid of those mandates? Oh, that's why my interstate purchase is what, what I advocate, that if... You, if you live in a high-mandate state and you don't want that, you buy it from a state that doesn't have many of those mandates, and then that really reduces the power of the provider groups in that first state to get to have those implemented. And then the regulators probably will have to adjust somewhat in their mandates. 
There was the guy, not the cat, but the one beside you was the first one with the uh, Broncos. Sorry about the loss yesterday, by the way. Yeah, I got a few questions. I'll say most of them for the end. In reference to your, uh, the, the, what you're talking about with the Canadian system, I was wondering, I've got a, a fair number of Canadian friends who all love their health care and will not uh, become true American citizens because they don't want to give it up. And um, I'm curious, with the, uh, the single-payer system, you know, I don't know many details about how it's taxed or how, how it's paid for. If the, um, if the cost of health care in Canada is um, ultimately put on the taxpayer, and if, I'm kind of curious if you do. And also, as far as shortages go, um, I've also heard that a lot of the shortages that get discussed in Canada, the, the problems that they have with shortages, are similar to the shortages we have here in like inner cities where you know, nobody wants to work anyway, whether they're doctors or teachers or any of the like. But in, um, uh, de as far as demographics go, in demographic areas where we don't have problems getting health insurance and, and health coverage and doctors, neither do Canadians. Um, but the, the shortage areas are, are similar. Yeah, I, I think I've, uh, my, my question's been stated, I hope. Yes. <laughs> so let me address that. And in fact, I want, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to put off questions for a few minutes because that got me into Canada, which is where I wanted to go. So let me just. Uh, answer your question briefly and then go on to more things about Canada. Uh, first of all, the polling data show that he's pretty much right, that a very high percent of Canadians like what they have. And it's also true that a very high percent of Canadians are healthy. And the Canadian system is great if what you have is a cold and you're willing to wait in a doctor's office for a couple hours. The problem is if what you have is more serious. And what happens, I think, is that people have gotten so used to that, they aren't judging it that way anymore. And let me give an example of my father. My father, um, he, let's put it this way, he got very upset when I moved to America. He hated Ronald Reagan. I worked for Ronald Reagan. Uh, he, hated he hated American health care. He loved socialized medicine in Canada. Uh, he got sick in his 80s, and I wrote about this in another book, uh, uh, Making Great Decisions in Business and Life. He got sick, and uh, he, couldn't he, he couldn't use his legs. He had something with his heart and his legs. I don't know. I'm not a doctor. Something that you know, could be fixed. Uh, I came up. Oh, well, I didn't tell you the little detail. He tried to commit suicide because life without his legs was just intolerable for him. He was a very active man in his, in his late 70s. He wanted to bicycle 15 miles a day, that kind of stuff. He couldn't. So I came up to Canada to try to figure out, A, why did you try to commit suicide? And found out, well, it's this, my legs. B, well, did you uh, think about trying to get surgery? And uh, it turned out he wasn't sick enough to be on the list to get the surgery soon. So essentially, it's a triage system where, you know, he's not sick enough. So I started making plans to come up the next weekend and take him down to Fargo and pay 20 grand if we had to, because he had that in his estate, and get his surgery. Well, the good news was he got sicker, and so he got the surgery. So that's kind of, that's a piece of how it works. And did he change his view on Canadian health care any time during that experience? Uh-uh. It's great. It's great. Fast forward a couple years, he also liked reading a lot. He read about a book a week. He got cataracts, needed cataract surgery. He's on a list to get it in six months. And I, again, made plans. I'll come up, take you down to Fargo. You'll get cataract surgery. And, you know, meanwhile, 
he found a clinic in Winnipeg run by a doctor from India that didn't deal with Medicare. Medicare is their name for socialized medicine. Didn't deal with Medicare at all, just charged the patient, and my father paid. I asked around afterwards, how did they get exempt? Because in Canada, which I was going to get to, Canada's extreme in a sense. It's like Cuba in the sense that you are literally not allowed to pay for health care. You and the doctor are violating the law if you pay for health care. So how did he do this? Well, there was an exemption for this particular thing. So I asked a journalist in Canada who writes about health care, what's the principle that said it was all right for my father to pay for cataract surgery, but it's not all right for him to pay for surgery on lung cancer? He said, I cannot detect a principle. They just allowed it here. They didn't allow it there. So that's, that's a big piece of it. Your other question about about costs. Expenditure on healthcare in Canada as a percent of GDP is approximately 10, maybe 11, and here it's approximately uh, 17, something like that. Oh, it is? This one's working again? Should I go to this? <laughs> okay. So I want to say a little more about Canadian healthcare, and I want to tell my dog story. A Canadian newspaper, oh, well, the Canadian newspaper in Canada reported that in Toronto in 1991, or a small town near Toronto, dogs could get CT scans, or the way I like to put it, dogs could get CAT scans, for $300 with less than 24 hours notice, whereas people had to wait for up to three months for the same CT scan. Now, why couldn't people get CT scans so easily? Because in, government, in Canada, the way it works is the government allocates budgets to various people for various things. So the people who run the CT scan are allocated X amount of money that pays for their employees and so on for that year. So they've got to ration out the number of scans they do. They can't charge people more than $0 for that CAT scan, but they can charge the owner of a dog $300 for a CAT scan. So the dogs come in in the off hours and get the CAT scans much more quickly than the people. Now, why is that? Well, you see, it's because the government doesn't care about dogs, and the government cares about people. I don't know if any of you have ever seen that old Paul Newman movie, Cool Hand Luke. One of my favorite lines in it is when the sadistic warden uh, says to Luke he's punishing him for his own good. And Luke says, I wish you weren't so good to me. And I think many Canadians probably wish their government didn't care so much about them. Because, you see, it's hard to say that the Canadian government guarantees health care, at least in the usual sense of the word guarantee. What, in fact, it guarantees is that if you get health care, you won't be allowed to pay for it, and it is this guarantee that makes you have to wait to get it. Um, so... It's kind of ironic because I think the people who advocate a Canadian-style system and the people in Canada who advocate the system wanted it because they wanted to guarantee something to people. I really do take them at, at their word on their intentions. And yet the result is they don't, they don't allow people to get it even if the people were willing to pay for it. Now, so far, I haven't talked about the Obama plan. And there's a reason for that. I also haven't talked about unicorns. Unicorns don't exist. Neither does the Obama plan. And I mean that literally. There's no Obama plan. 
Did anyone see a speech about eight weeks ago to the nation or to Congress about his plan? He doesn't have a plan. Bacchus has a plan in the Senate. Pelosi has a plan in the House. Which ones he favor? We don't know. But I think we should at least look at what's likely to emerge, and I think we can detect the broad outlines. And I want to point out something interesting that happened between the early or the late winter, early spring, and now. Around March, April, President Obama was saying that the reason we needed health care reform now, the reason it was so urgent, was that we wanted to, in his words, bend the curve on health care spending. He looked quite correctly at Medicare and Medicaid spending and saw that they're scheduled to consume close to, 50, to somewhere between 15 and 20 percent of GDP within a decade or two. That's a very high number. To put it in perspective, if they consume 20 percent of GDP, the government wouldn't have anything left to pay for anything else. Basically, the government spends somewhere around 20 to 24 percent of GDP. And so he wanted to bend the curve on health care. The whole idea was have these reforms to get health care spending and Medicare and Medicaid down, to get the growth rate down. Well, what he did was essentially engage in a gigantic bait and switch. Because now, pardon me, it's not about that at all. Any savings they're getting from Medicare, and people really have good reason to doubt those savings, but the basic way they're funding this expansion in health insurance to other people, the one way is with higher taxes, the other way is with cuts in Medicare spending. In other words, it's no net, even if he's right that there's no net effect on the deficit, and I can, I'm pretty sure he's wrong and I can tell you why, but even if he were right that there's no net effect on the deficit, the point is what that means is it's a complete failure at achieving what he said he wanted to achieve early in his administration, namely bending the curve on government spending on health care. And let me also point out that the government is notorious for, invest, for, for estimating in, one, in a biased direction what a government program is going to cost. They almost always, almost always understate it. So when the Medicare law was passed in 1965, the House Ways and Means Committee forecasted that by 1990, annual spending for Medicare, for hospital care under Medicare, would be $9.6 billion. In fact, it turned out to be $67 billion, in other words, seven times what it was forecasted to be. Another interesting thing about the, the various plans, and I know the Bacchus plan better than the Pelosi plan, I've had more time to look at it, is the high implicit marginal tax rates on low and middle income people in that plan. And let me explain that. Here's their idea. They say, we want to require everyone to buy insurance, but we don't want insurance companies to be able to price according to risk. So in other words, we want the thing that leads to adverse selection, but we don't want low-risk low people not to buy insurance, so we're going to make them buy insurance. But it's going to be expensive because they're going to be paying for the high-risk people. So let's subsidize them if their income's below a certain level. And as their income rises from that level, we don't want to be subsidizing people making 200000 a year. So we'll reduce the subsidy over some income range. So think about that. 
If the government reduces a subsidy that you start with over an income range, you lose that subsidy as you earn more income. So within a wide range, within a, a swath of the population that's tens of millions of families, when you make an extra dollar in income, you will lose approximately 23 cents in subsidy. So think about now what your tax rate is. A lot of people, when they make an extra dollar of income, pay 15% or 25%. That's what most people pay to the federal government on their income tax. So their marginal tax rate is 15 or 25. Then they have their Social Security and health insurance payroll tax. That's 7.65. So you make a dollar, you pay 15 or 25 cents plus 7 cents. Now we're up to 23 or 33. There are also state income taxes. You make a dollar, if you have a 5% marginal tax rate in your state, you lose another 5 cents. So most people in America are paying marginal tax rates on income between 30 and 40%. This would add 23 percentage points to that tax rate. So instead of implicitly paying 30 to 40%, you'd be paying 50 to 70 percent, uh, sorry, um, um, 50 to 60 percent marginal tax rates. And a lot of, and what are people going to do in response? A lot of them are going to be a little less ambitious in making money. They're going to make money on the side that the government doesn't know about that isn't taxed. So we're going to have a bigger underground economy with the inefficiencies that go with that. How does this, the Congressional Budget Office is the entity that scores, they call it scoring these budget proposals. How do they score that? How do they take account of that in its effect on the gross domestic product of the country? Zero. They assume it's not going to happen. And yet our best estimates are that it will happen. If you want to check, I don't know how many of you read Greg Mankiw's blog, but he had a blog on this. It was either today or yesterday laying out these data. Um, I want to mention uh, one other thing um, about one of the problems we have with the uninsured, because I think this has been misstated a lot. We have approximately 45 million people in this country who are uninsured. The image we get is that they're uninsured forever. The reality is that they're uninsured, a large percent of them are uninsured for a short time. So imagine Kodak could come up with some great camera that could take a picture of every uninsured person in the country. Right? They got this big picture, 47 million people get together, hi mom. And then they took the picture and six months later they took the picture again. Half the people who were in that picture the first time would not be in it the second time. In other words, half of the people would have got insurance. So a large part of it is people uninsured for a short time. The other thing about the uninsured is they are disproportionately young. And young people are rolling the dice, essentially. Would I do it? No. I was a much more risk-averse person when I was young. But would I understand people doing it and think it's not necessarily a terrible idea? Yeah, I do. Also, the uninsured are disproportionately illegal aliens. Now, I want, I've kind of laid out 
how we got where we got, I want to lay out my three principles for health care reform. And they're all about the use of force. And the first one is no one should be forced to pay for someone else's health care. Second, no one should be forcibly prevented from buying health care, as they are in Canada. And third, no one should be required to buy health care for himself. Now, what would that mean? Well, it means a whole lot of things. The first one means no Medicare and Medicaid. Before we had those, this is not ancient history, before we had those, we had a large voluntary charity sector. There were these things called Shriners Hospitals. There were doctors doing all kinds of volunteer work and so on. I remember in Canada, see, Canada got uh, socialized medicine in the late 60s. I was, a, uh, I was 18, 19 when they got it. So I remember when they didn't. And I remember a, a friend of mine whose doctor, when they, he, he gave away a lot of care to poor people. And they'd bring him potatoes or tomatoes or whatever from their garden. And when Medicare came in, of course, he was able to charge them. And his income doubled. And in fact, the Medicare agency audited him. You must be defrauding the organization because your income's double what it was last year according to your tax forms. No. He hadn't done anything illegal. He was just charging people. He was charging the government for care that he'd given away before. Uh, no restriction on the supply of doctors, which I've already talked about. No FDA preventing us from having drugs. No one prevented from paying doctors, as the government now does with people in Medicare. We have on people in Medicare, if doctors accept them and accept government payments, they can't accept anything more. And so there was a huge section of the Wall Street Journal a couple of years ago devoted to the elderly. How do you find a doctor in your community? With Medicare keeping rates down and not allowing balanced billing, not allowing people to pay more, it's very hard for the elderly now to get doctors in many communities. And of course, no restrictions on the kinds of insurance contracts people can enter. With no restrictions on the kinds of contracts we can enter, insurance can become more affordable and we can get more of it. And those are my prepared remarks. Thank you. And Alex, Alex, do we have time for more questions? We have five minutes. Uh, yes, David. Uh, how strong is the correlation state by state between cost and regulation? Uh, the states with less regulation, is that, are they the states with the cheapest cost? Um, you've got to, you've, it's hard to quantify the regulation. The ones with the, should I maybe give people a minute to leave so it's not disturbing others? Why don't I do that? So if anyone's going to leave, leave now. These, the, the regulations that are most important are two kinds, guaranteed issue and community rating. Community rating is what leads to adverse selection. Remember my story about the insurance company being able to, not being able to distinguish between the low-risk and high-risk person, and that led to adverse selection. Well, they can distinguish, and therefore they price accordingly. So what governments in some states, like New Jersey and New York, have done is said, we're going to have community rating. You've got to charge the same to everyone. Or maybe you can vary with age, but you can't vary with lots of other things. That leads to adverse selection. That makes insurance more expensive. The other one is called guaranteed issue. So you want to buy insurance. Guaranteed issue means the insurance company has to provide it. Well, if they have to provide it, they're going to price accordingly. 
The really bad combination is guaranteed issue plus community rating. And here's why. If everyone has to be charged the same, and they've got to provide it when you want it, and, and by the way, if they can't have pre-existing conditions clauses, what happens? Lots of people game the system. You're healthy, you don't buy insurance. You get sick, you buy insurance. They've got to offer it to you, and they've got to charge it at community rating rates, and that's what drives it up. That's why New Jersey is so expensive. It's got both of those. So, so those are the kinds of things that, that really drive up the cost. In fact, I wrote an article a number of years ago when this was talked about in the early 90s in which I gave an analogy between this and one of my favorite um, um, shows on TV, uh, Cheers. There's an episode in which Woody has this system for picking the winners in football. You know, the little pool they do every, every week. And it has to do with the colors of the team and all these things that, you know, shouldn't matter. And, uh, and he thinks he's got this great system. So he wants to bet $500. So Sam wants him not to waste $500. So Sam says, look, I got a bookie and I can place the bet with him. And of course, Sam just puts the money away. He's gonna give Woody the money a week from now and look like a hero. Well, he doesn't place the bet. Woody's system works. All the teams come through. And Woody wants his 10 grand. Well, of course, Sam doesn't have his 10 grand. So he's trying to scramble and figure out, what do I do? And Diane says, well, you know, you, what you could do is you could go to the bookie and say, I meant to place the bet. That's what this guaranteed issue plus community rating is. I mean, the whole idea, I mean, we don't, when someone gets cancer, we don't say, hey, go ahead and get, get life insurance as if you don't have cancer. Everyone understands it's priced for that. And it's the same principle, really. Uh, yes? A little louder. With regard to the different states having their own healthcare system, for instance, New Jersey and Massachusetts, yes. isn't the federal government supposed to look at those is that as examples before they institute it? Yeah, there's this famous, um, yeah, there's this famous um, line from a Supreme Court justice, I think it was Felix Frank Frankfurter, who said that the states are the laboratories of democracy. In other words, the whole idea is you try things out at the state level, you see what works, what doesn't work. And it, it is, I know why you're asking that question, I think. It, it's stunning how little they're looking, although it is the case that Obama did look at Massachusetts, judged it a failure when he was running against Hillary Clinton, but now seems ready to impose super Massachusetts. Yes, sir. Um, one, of the, one of the things that I think should be mentioned it, in terms of problems with the healthcare system is a lack of competition. Yes. Because it, it seems to me as though, just all I have is a consumer standpoint, I'm not a health economist, but uh, it seems to me as though it's run by an oligopoly essentially right now, and that they're making moves to act as a cartel essentially. And I think that that's one of the big problems. So how do we mitigate that without you know, maybe without resorting to antitrust laws or and that sort of thing. Is, is there some sort of incentive that we can give to start up insurance companies or things like that? Yeah, that's what I was talking about with the buying across state lines. That dramatically undercuts the power of an insurer in a particular state. So that's on the insurance side. On the provider side, you allow more competition among doctors. You get rid of the con laws, certificate of need laws, so you have more competition among hospitals. 
I mean, I would like to see, well, I'd like to see open immigration, but if failing that, I'd like to see the government give, you know, 500,000 H-1B visas to doctors, and we get them, and, and, and have very, you know, very quick certification. I mean, that, that would cause a lot more competition. Uh, I, I will get to you if I, don't, if I don't get other new people, so, yes, sir. You're ready to take uh, the certification from France, but you're not discussing the system. Are you ready to take that system? Do you have no. something to say that we can learn about other systems? Oh, I did talk about what we can learn from the Canadian system, right? I mean, don't do it. Um, the French system, um, and if, I don't know if you saw the movie Sicko, uh, but he didn't really... I lived in France for five years. Okay. Would you want to say something about it? No. No, oh, okay. I'm, just, I'm just, I'm just, I'd like to understand why you have this, you're willing to accept the, the certification, but I assume you're not willing to, to take their system. Well, I don't know, the honest answer is I don't know enough about the French system. I know it's heavily socialized, but I think not as much as Canada. Um, but um, the reason I'm willing to accept certification is it's a way of loosening up certification. That's a very different question. Yes? Um, actually, it's the same question. I don't, I don't know if it's... Same as his or no, same The one I asked previously oh, okay. Okay. Um, concerning the, the cost of the Canadian system and how it's actually paid for by the taxpayers. Uh, if you know anything about that. It's all paid for by the taxpayers. Um, so how does that create uh, a problem of, of price controls? If, I mean, somebody's paying for it. Right. That's what I said. The price is set at zero for the consumer. It obviously can't be set at zero for the producers, or you'd have no producers. So the government sets up a fee schedule, uses tax money to pay for it. If I had a graph, <laughs> remember your supply and demand curves? Okay. So imagine a supply and demand. Okay. Here's a demand curve. Here's a supply curve. And here's the equilibrium with no government. And quantity demand equals quantity supply. Lower the price a little below that, and that's paid to suppliers, so you get less supplied. But lower the price zero to zero is what demanders ha uh, demand, and they'll demand out to where their marginal value is zero, and that's why you get a big shortage. And that price per, the price that's paid to the doctors times the quantity, doctors and hospitals, that's with tax revenue. So aren't the taxpayers ultimately the consumer that's paying for it anyway? But they're, not, but they're not doing it qua consumer, they're doing it qua taxpayer. In other words, if I'm a consumer, I don't say, oh, when I go into the clinic, my taxes are going to go up. My taxes are unaffected by my individual choice. And also, um, the question about demographics and shortage of health care compared to here in the United States as opposed to Canada. The demographics, what I've looked at, is it seems there seems a lot of randomness. You'll get one little rural area in Canada that has no problem. You'll get another rural area that has huge problems. When you get to major cities, you have big problems because that kind of washes out and you get on net a shortage. So for example, there was an article during the debate about the Clinton health care plan in the Wall Street Journal titled, Don't Give Birth Up Here. It was by a woman who'd uh, given birth in a New York hospital, but she was Canadian, and she was talking to a Canadian friend, and her Canadian friend said, did you, and she, she'd given, a birth, given a birth in a Toronto hospital, she said, did you get an epidural? And uh, the, woman, the woman in New York said, well, yeah, I got an epidural. Did, 
Why? And she said, well, I didn't. Well, why not? Well, because in the United States at the time, an anesthesiologist could make about a grand, could make about $1,000 for being around to do that, to do all the anesthesia. In Toronto at the time, he'd make 100 bucks. And so if you were going to give birth at 3 a.m., and there was a car crash down the street, and they really needed that anesthesiologist there, you got to experience the natural joys of natural childbirth. And those kinds of things happen. And again, a lot of it has to do with what people get used to. And uh, yes? Um, I'm from, I'm, I'm on a steering committee for the Denver 912 project, and also the Denver what? 912 project. Which is what? Glenn Beck's 912 project, we're okay. a free market limited government, um, and, and we're based, our, our program is based on education. I'm also a member of the Pikes Peak Economic Club, okay. with Dr. Prentice, I believe he may have been a former policy years in Washington. I'm uh, sorry, Dr. Paul Prentice. Uh, no, uh, I know the name, but he wasn't. Uh, my question to you is, um, we're really focused on, on our founding fathers and our founding documents. And so my question to you is, where in the Constitution does it say our government has the right to even legislate this? There's very clear 18 enumerated powers. Right. It's my understanding that they're um, basing this legislation on the Interstate Commerce Clause, but there's no interstate commerce, which is part of the problem in health right. So right. I don't understand why they can even legislate this. It's not constitutional. I actually agree with you. I, um, as I, I've read the Constitution a bunch of times. I, I think maybe coming from Canada, you know, you read things more because you're kind of jazzed about the country you moved to. And what I understand is that the Constitution is a set of enumerated powers. In other words, what that means is, if it's not listed as one of your powers, federal government, you don't have it. And there's nothing in there that gives them this power, I agree. Now, the reason I don't want to lean on that is I have a sense of what my odds are before the Supreme Court given the other stuff they've allowed for the last number of years. I'd like to fight it before it gets to the Supreme Court, because I'm not confident we'd win that battle. We might get a five to four vote, by the way, but I think it'd actually be more like six to three or seven to two. Uh, sh yes, I'm taking you, so I want to go to him. Yes? I've heard uh, Nancy Pelosi and, uh, and other politicians uh, say that one of the ways they're going to pay for this system is uh, to cut out uh, wasteful spending and, uh, and fraud in Medicare and Medicaid. Yeah. Um, I just, I, I, I'm failing to see how uh, how they know this is going on. Why aren't they legislating against stuff like that to begin with and not trying to say they're going to save all this money doing doing nothing, basically, and, and just creating a bigger system and more possibilities of fraud and wasteful. Yeah, that's a good question. And when we, in the old days, in the 70s, when you did software, you had something called a kludge. And that's a kludge, right? We're just going to say that. We don't really have in mind how we're going to cut that spending. And of course, if they did have it in mind, guess what? It could have helped Obama with his pledge back in March and April. Here's how we bend the curve in Medicare and Medicaid. Do that stuff. But I, I, I don't think they, they have it in mind. I don't think they know how to do it. Uh, yes? Uh, I wasn't as politically active when they enacted a compulsory car insurance laws, but was there this much upheaval and aggression against like compulsory car insurance? No, I don't think there was. Why not? I mean, oh. is it essentially the same thing? The government mandating that that consumers, you know, okay, let me aren't some good and/or service? Isn't it roughly the same thing? Why um, are people up in arms about current? Okay, so let me answer. Um, 
I do not advocate compulsory car insurance, but let me make the case that people make that you cannot make with health insurance, and that is the externality argument. You run into someone, you cause them a lot of damage, you have no insurance, and you have no assets, they're screwed, right? And so the idea with compulsory car insurance is make you buy basic liability, not to insure yourself, but to insure against other people. Health insurance, when I'm buying health insurance, I'm insuring myself. There aren't that many externalities in healthcare. If I break my arm, it's my arm. If I have cancer, it's my cancer. There are a few things, but we handle those with things like vaccines. And by the way, the insurance, the uh, uh, pharmaceutical companies have actually very price, generally priced their vaccines very low because they want to be good corporate citizens, and and so that hasn't been a problem. But so that's that's a big difference. But I think the other reason there wasn't an upheaval is that car insurance is still relatively cheap. Health insurance, the average cost for a family now in the United States is approximately $12,000, and that's a big number. And it's an especially big number to a family making, say, $35,000. And that's, I think, why it's such a big deal. Is that, uh, is that our limit, or do we have time for? Okay, thank you. Oh, actually, can I just, can I read something? I came across this yesterday when I was just on the plane. This is a, I don't know who said it, it was on my Facebook, someone sent it to me. Let me get this straight. We're going to pass a health care plan written by a committee whose head says he doesn't understand it, passed by a Congress that hasn't read it but exempts themselves from it, signed by a president that also hasn't read it and who smokes, with funding administered by a treasury chief who didn't pay his taxes, overseen by a surgeon general who's obese, and financed by a country that's broke. What could possibly go wrong? 